This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, it's Verge Week. Some highlights from this week's four-day event. A legendary venture capitalist on how CEOs view the feeding frenzy on climate tech. When ESG meets the SEC. And will COP26 make any difference? We're all about convergence this week on 350. It's October 29th. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, getting ready for trick-or-treaters is Green Biz's decidedly non-scary editorial director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Boo! (laughs) Did I not scare you? Uh, A little bit. I didn't hear that coming, so well well played. Um, (laughs) Yes, uh, yes, uh, yes. Hello, Joel. I'm so excited to see you next week. I know. When we do this, uh, well, no, you won't see me next week. You'll see me the week after. But when we next talk, you'll be in Glasgow, Scotland for, for COP, will. and I'll be joining you there at the end of next week uh, yep. in time to do our, our podcast uh, for the week of uh, yep. of the 8th in Scotland. So yeah, uh, how are things shaping up? I mean, I don't know about you, but my dance card is getting really full. My dance card is getting very full. I'm excited. I'm packing sweaters. I'm figuring <laughs> out transportation. And uh Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I'm just really excited. Yeah. Uh, I, this I, is I, my first cop. I mean, you know that. I don't know if the listeners know that. So I'm just really um, humbled that I'll get to be there for, I think, what will be a historic event. I just... Well, as I always like to say, you never forget your first time. <laughs> but, I, but I just have one word for you when you're packing. Rain. The forecast yes. is for a lot of rain. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the UK. It's We expect that. It's, it's uh, almost winter, late fall. So... Yeah, get ready for that. But um, Verge, uh, wow, Verge. What, what a week. It's amazing we're still standing mm-hmm. or at least sitting here. Um, uh, it was quite the week. Uh, kudos, obviously, to Shauna Rappaport, uh, impresario of Verge, who uh, led an amazing team of analysts and event producers and, and uh, creatives and uh, <laughs> marketing and everybody else on the Green Biz team that always comes together in such uh, mm-hmm. just an exciting and amazing way to put on these events. And to the yep. to the Verge community who, who shows up and speaks up and participates fully and... Yep. Um, and and just really gets into the moment. We really appreciate yeah. that. You know what I hate about Verge, though, Joel? I, I'm, I'm going to guess. I cannot go two, to every... Yeah. It's, I can't go to everything I want to. Yeah. There's too many good sessions. Yeah. Like, I, I look at every time slot, and I, I think, oh, my gosh. So, fortunately, uh, we will have recordings up in a few weeks. So, I'm excited about that because yeah. I'll get to watch things. Like a cooking show. We had a live cooking show. <laughs> 
I know. And you and I missed that because we were both hosting other exactly. sessions during that. Yeah. Uh, and I can't yeah. wait to see that. Uh, but we're going to play some some segments that you have curated for this episode uh, in mm -hmm. a few minutes. Uh, so we'll get ready for that. Um, yeah, but I knew it, it, there were just too many things to, to, to see. It's a, a nice problem to have, but it's still a problem. Um, and so we'll, yeah, <laughs> we'll catch up on the, uh, on the replay uh, down the line. But you know what? It's time to replay the Week in Review. Uh, and we're going to start this week with a piece that you wrote, Heather, about one of our go-to companies, just because they always seem to be doing something interesting, Microsoft. Um, what do you have to say this week of the piece you wrote, uh, Heather, about Microsoft and the digitalization of sustainability? Yes. So this is a, uh, actually, you you were the first person to really write about this topic um, a couple of years ago. But the thing that I'm on about this, this week is that we've seen so many startups invade the space, the carbon accounting, the ESG metrics, the, you know, there's tons and tons of wonderful startups in this space. It's a great part of the climate tech movement. And now what is, what we're seeing is Companies like Microsoft now saying, hi, we're an enterprise software company. And guess what? You need to manage your sustainability functions and operations. And they're bringing this sort of discipline to the, the profession, if you will, through a, something called the Microsoft Cloud for Sustainability. And the reason that I mentioned Salesforce at the beginning is because Salesforce has a very similar product called the, I think it's a sustainability cloud. The idea is that both of these software companies have turned their own internal processes for managing carbon emissions, for figuring out what carbon removal projects to invest in, for zero waste, for you know how to charge internal carbon pricing, you know, to, to get the money to invest in these things. And they're using all of the great knowledge that they they've built and amassed over the years to create these products that they're going to sell to other businesses. So you know, kudos to Salesforce for jumping in first as a big company two years ago. Now, this week, we've got Microsoft. We've also got another company that I'm bringing up, um, ServiceNow. And as a software geek, the reason I'm really excited about them is because they're another huge company in lots of, of big, big corporations um, for managing workflows and, and service desks and so forth. ServiceNow works with Airbus, MGM, Wayfair, like companies you've heard of, and they help manage these other processes. And now we've got two, th actually now three very big enterprise software companies that have said, this is legit. You need to make this part of your overall IT processes. You need to integrate this into how you run your company, period. It can't be this little si spreadsheet side project that's that's being managed over here. You know, so I, that, this for me is kind of a, a you know, a milestone moment for for this category of software i think we're going to see a lot of activity now that this entry is out there yeah i think we're going to be seeing uh, some some sustainability cloud wars i guess uh, but, mm -hmm. but i'm wondering um heather i don't know if you can weigh in on this i mean salesforce 
Microsoft, two great companies, two leadership companies, they don't make anything. I mean, they, you know, they, there's an Xbox and some products, but they, they're not manufacturing companies. They're not, you know, dirt under the fingernails companies. And I'm wondering how much, you know, the things, I love the fact that they, you know, tested these and it worked for them. And now they're going to roll it out to, to the world. Um, but you know, how much of that's transferable? Yeah, so actually they have been, um, you know, I don't know about Salesforce, but Microsoft has been working with uh, a number of its own customers, right? So it does this across many different industries. This is actually just, quote, another industry <laughs> to Microsoft that's part of that division, but they work with a lot of companies that are unlike them to help manage their processes. One of the, the examples is a food company, uh, Grupo Bimbo, a Mexican food company. And they have a lot of sort of preview clients for this. So they took it, yes, they took their own processes and then they went out to a number of their customers and kind of banged on this um, and to, to figure out, you know, how how is this gonna work for someone that makes widgets or cement or, you know, has a food production process. Um, the other thing that, I don't think, and again, I'll, this is my geek background speaking um, that people don't realize is that Microsoft has thousands of developers and sales partners that it works with, um, people that work in very specific industries and have the knowledge of those industries and can take this core platform and customize it for for those particular operations. And that's a big advantage. I mean, they have this huge network of business partners and now they're going to spend time figuring out um, and actually going out and training them. That's part of part of the this this launch process they've got going on. So, you know, yeah, it's going to take a while to get into place. Can a software I mean, I mean, they they help manage processes all over the, you know, all over the place for supply chains already, and they don't make those products. I think, I think they've got a very good shot at, yeah. at doing a good job here. Good point. Well, one of the ways that this, uh, the data from these uh, platforms is going to be useful is in corporate reporting on ESG data, and that mm -hmm. brings us to uh, the second uh, story. Do want to talk about this one? Came from our Greenfin Weekly newsletter, a free weekly newsletter, which you uh, encourage to subscribe to on ESG and sustainable finance issues, and it's uh, at by uh, Grant Harrison, our green, fin, uh, green finance and ESG analyst. And he wrote about uh, what happens as the SEC is increasingly looking at how to think about and probably regulate uh, e environmental, social, and governance data reporting. Uh, and and it, it, it's, it's sort of a you know, a lot of it's speculative because we don't really know, but it's 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 clearing up the picture in terms of of where where this is going. But what what Grant did, which I thought was interesting, is he talked to uh, investors and what are they looking for, what do they expect, uh, mm -hmm. how do they see this this um, this rolling out? And you know, everybody's speculating at this point, but it, it, it's a really interesting piece that I think brings together a lot of good thinking about this. And and um, one of the big questions that we're, that this is, needs to be addressing. Um, and it's implicit, if not explicit, in this piece that Grant wrote is is how much of ESG is is genuine, and how much of it's actually different, and, and therefore changing things that would not have otherwise happened, because. We're starting to see some uh, other research and, and studies about some of these ESG funds, the, the exchange traded funds, and, and mutual funds, and other things that are being offered by a lot of the you know the big uh, fidelities and vanguards and, and pretty much everybody else. That they're they're not you know they've, they're sort of sketchy in some ways. Uh, I'm not speaking about any of these any particular company, but they you know they have things that it, when you start to look under the hood that maybe they're not really. You know, like in other words, 
if the if the oil company, oil and gas company with the highest ESG rating, you know, you know, should they be in there? Uh, should they be part of that? You know, and uh, you know, right. It reminds me of right. that great John Elkington book title from the past, which is "Cannibals with Forks." And the premise is, <laughs> is if a cannibal eats with a fork, is that progress? Uh, you know, and so yeah, if if a, if an oil and gas company, you know, who needs to be, you know, arguably phasing out or you know down or out uh, fossil fuels, mm -hmm. is doing a great job environmentally in terms of how they're procuring, you know, oil and gas and how they're reporting it and their metrics and their vision and their commitments is that does that belong in a fund? So I think that's part of what the SEC would be looking at other than just standardizing the way uh, we talk about these things so that we can tell for ourselves is this, you know, e highly rated ESG company really a good company that we want to invest in. Yeah, I, I think <laughs> to what you were just saying, there's a great quote here in the article uh, from someone at Invesco, and that person says, ESG as a product is just not the same as ESG as a strategy. Taking advantage of asymmetric information to find alpha, that is not, not under attack and it shouldn't be. The ESG label itself is now part of the problem. So I think that's what, what you know, that just sort of really <laughs> summarizes what you were just saying. Um, it's so problematic that we do consider a gas, an oil and gas company to be the best rated ESG thing. I mean, I, I, yeah, it infuriates me. <laughs> and and uh, by, by the way, this is, uh, you know, to use a phrase I used a little bit earlier, a nice problem to have, because the yeah. fact that the SEC is looking at this means that, you know, ESG matters. It is now part of the mainstream. Mm -hmm. It is now a big big deal in terms of the trillions of dollars that are going into these funds. In fact, um, Bloomberg says that ESG assets are on track to exceed $50 trillion in just the next, uh, within four years by 2025. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's at the same time where a lot of folks are still getting their, their brains wrapped around, you know, what is this thing called ESG and how do we think about it and is it real? And meanwhile, there's pouring trillions of dollars into it. So th this is just, it's in need of regulation. And you know what, which is, this is actually a place where the financial community, uh, if not the reporting companies themselves, mm -hmm. want the regulators to come in and say, we need some structure here. Otherwise, this yeah. is the Wild West. Got it. Yeah. So let's. I'm going to take us to Scotland now because your your piece. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I just I as 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 the neophyte, as the person who's trying to figure out what I should be focusing on at a COP. I loved your piece this week. Um, you, you you pose the question: Will COP make any difference? Um, and you know, there's a lot riding on this, as as we've been saying for weeks and months, and um, we don't know a lot of things, and as we as we record this, we we don't know what the state of some really important U.S. legislation um, is, and that will matter greatly when we get to the the stage next week. Um, and you know, I just I'm just curious as as the as a, I don't know vet, dare I say veteran the cop veteran. Um, you know what? What are your impressions, and and what what were you thinking when you when you wrote this piece? What was I thinking? Well, the, the question <laughs> uh, will COP make any difference? You, you can really think about it at two levels. One mm -hmm. is at the at the actual COP 
negotiation, will it make uh, any mm -hmm. difference? Will the negotiators from 197 countries you know, come to terms on how quickly countries will cut their emissions, how big those cuts need to be in the short, medium and long term, how much money the richer nations will, will send to the poorer ones to help them finance their transition away from fossil fuels, things like that. Um, and, you know, in other words, will people walk away uh, at the end of, of COP26, uh, much as that, that great moment at the end of COP21 in Paris, the one that yielded the Paris Agreement, where there you, it's, it's picture has been you know shown a thousand times around everyone standing on the front of the on stage, the, the main, main negotiators holding their arms up in the air in this great moment of victory. Will we see something like that? Um, and by the way, I, I pose that it's a relatively low bar given, you know, how serious this is that, you know, in, in a lot of ways, COP26 succeeds if it doesn't fail. So that's that's one side way to, to ask the question yeah. of will COP make any difference? But the other side is, you know, will from a company perspective or an investment firm or pretty much even a, a government uh, uh, perspective, you know, will all of this have changed anything in terms of the dynamics of how companies operate and the relationship with with finance and activists and re regulators and all the rest? And from an individual company perspective, you know, will anything be different after COP than it was before? And, and it generally isn't. But I guess the question is, you know, if we come out of this win or lose, uh, victorious or or not victorious, there will be a lot more attention paid to this and, and the Klieg lights of of transparency and disclosure and scrutiny of all kinds will be mm -hmm. on companies. And, you know, the po question I posed is, you know, will companies step up? to accelerate their efforts to decarbonize and do it genuinely without smoke and mirrors, accounting gimmicks, mm -hmm. unverifiable mm -hmm. timelines, you know, hypocritical lobbying efforts or just general hyperbole that people mm -hmm. now these days refer to as greenwash. That's a question as well. Yeah. And I think, you know, I, as, and I've never been there before, but I, I think, you know, that the, the general landscape of what the businesses have to work with is probably not going to change all that much. This this won't change it all that much, at least not in right right away. But I think there's one thing that's that seems to me, at least from my outsider's perspective of this, that seems to be different. And that is that at at the COP in Paris where this got done, we didn't have this activist movement. Um, this youth activism movement, this, in fact, I, I know that the indigenous community is going to be a huge force. They're not necessarily in the, in the rooms, in the negotiating rooms, but there's, I know there's a lot planned um, in terms of highly visible activism at the event, which maybe some of these business folks that are going haven't necessarily seen at that level before. So that could be really different, but I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess we'll have to see, right? Yeah, and I mean, we had some of them at Verge this week: Shai Bastida and uh, uh, Davishi Shaw and and others mm -hmm. speaking, and and Jerome Foster. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. great, amazing voices. You know, they except for a few like Jerome, who's in the uh, the Biden administration, working in the White House. They don't have a lot of power yet. It's mostly yeah, persuasion, and so uh, mm -hmm. you know, and it, and of course, mm -hmm. you know, people say, well, these are our customers and employees and and investors and voters of the future. Yeah, and they are, but you know, how how much does long term thinking on that sort really factor into decisions that companies or governments make now? So it's going to be really interesting to see in in Glasgow for the next two weeks. Uh, you know, what influence they have. 
And uh, I mean, it's just going to be, I could have ended the sentence. It's just going to be really interesting to see in Glasgow for the next two weeks. It's going to be fascinating to see all the different threads that (laughs) come together or don't in that great Scottish city. So Heather, as you do so well every time we have an event, you have picked some some clips uh, to, to give a taste of what uh, you may have missed, or to hear again what you what you heard at Verge Twenty One this week. What you got? We've got five, count them, five Woo. clips from Verge, and this is just a couple. The first couple of days, we'll have another set of these uh, in our next episode, but. Without further ado, I will start us off with one of the speakers from uh, an early session, Margaret Klein-Solomon, Executive Director of the Climate Emergency Fund, one of the sessions that you moderated, Joel. And here she is reflecting on the new movement of change makers and why philanthropy needs to change its stripes. There is a new movement that is popping up more and more, and it is distinct from the gradualist big green approach that has dominated environmentalism for decades. These are young, ultra ambitious organizations who know that we need nothing less than to transform our policy, our energy system, our agricultural system, our land use. And so the Climate Emergency Fund invests in this new movement. And doing so, it contains so many opportunities for breakthroughs and rapid change, which is exactly what we need. But it also uh, brings certain challenges that investing philanthropically in established, professionalized institutions does not take. So these movements, in 2019, the Sunrise Movement, Extinction Rebellion, and the School Strikers were all less than two years old when they really came together to transform the climate conversation globally. So the at the Climate Emergency Fund, we're asking all the time, where is the next breakthrough coming from? Who is on the leading edge? Who is on the vanguard of activism, of thought leadership that supports activists? Who, who is creating movement infrastructure for these new movements? Because, yeah, we believe that the movements that are going to protect humanity in the living world are still being born. And so we want to help them uh, achieve their full potential. Her conversation partner in that session, Justin Winters, co-founder and executive director at One Earth, also had some wonderful insight on why it's important to support local solutionists. She she used that term. And of, and of course, women um, who have Great answers for the climate emergency, if we would only listen. There are millions of people that hold the solutions in their communities, on their lands, in their waters. Um, And they are incredible. They're the unseen. They are the change makers that here at One Earth, we are dedicated to radically scaling up the amount of philanthropic capital that is going to these solutionists on the ground. Um, Very few people really know this stat, though it's getting a lot more airtime these days. Less than 2% of all global philanthropic dollars go to climate and environment. And in fact, they think it's even lower. And just a quarter of that actually reaches efforts on the ground that are so critical to solving this. Um, And 0.2% actually goes to women-led environmental efforts, even though we know that they're often the best protectors of the earth. 
So there is a huge opportunity, I think, here if we're able to change this paradigm and flip that stat and actually get the resources to the incredible network of change makers around the world that are so critical to solving this. One of my favorite sessions uh, was a conversation between two venture capitalists uh, who were instrumental in the clean tech movement and now have moved into climate tech squarely, Andrew Beebe with Obvious Ventures and Chris Saka, founder and chairman of Lower Carbon Capital, also instrumental in the start of companies like, oh, little ones like Twitter, Uber, and others. And uh, here he talks about what is motivating the frenzy of funding in climate tech. In this clip, he talks about how C-suite executives are looking at this strategy. You know, they can look at this from two places. They can look at this like, hey, let's be good world citizens. Let's do something to address this major crisis that is impacting all of us. None of us are immune from this emergency right now. And let's do so in a way that actually attracts talent and retains talent and makes people proud to work here. And so let's do it out of the goodness of our hearts. Or at this point, let's just do it because the sheer economics are there. Right. I mean, our old economy of digging up and burning old dinosaur bones, which is literally how we power our economy right now, is just expensive. The math is so much clearer that using the sun to power our economy is much cheaper. And so for me, my heart is warmed when I see sheer CFOs literally doing cost-benefit analysis, not triple bottom line, but on the traditional gap bottom line, realizing this makes us money. And I mean, I've seen it taking the extreme. My friend Chris James at Engine One, who went to Exxon and made the case for it's just better business to start to decarbonize and put three members on that board there. And when we went out and raised our funds, so we raised... $800 million in a couple of days. And we had billions of dollars of interest that we literally couldn't accommodate. But I loved when I saw LPs come in who had a climate mandate. It's always amazing when a foundation or university says, hey, look, we're trying to shift more of our portfolio into climate. So can we put some money with you? That's good. It feels good. But what really warmed my heart was when people who probably don't vote like I do and probably don't have a lot in common with me. And some of whom probably think that January 6th was a, was a tourist visit to the Capitol building would come and say, hey, look, we've looked at these numbers and they just add up. This industry has changed and this is just plain good business now. Because essentially carbon has a price, it's expensive. Every time carbon is embedded into a product, it costs more. And so as we look around that wheel of emissions, what do we look at? Bio and ag and transport and energy and building materials and industrial chemicals. Every single time you take carbon out of the equation, you save a bunch of money. Like think about, you guys know the company Solugen making industrial chemicals using enzymes instead of oil. That's a nine figure run rate business with 60% margins for a commodity. And the guy who on the other end who buys that stuff asks two questions. Is it hydrogen peroxide and is it cheaper? Well then fuck it, I'll buy it. I don't think that guy cares about the climate. He's just buying the cheaper product. And so that's what's been amazing right now is we see companies getting there, either they get there by guilt and shame, which I don't think actually scale very well, they get there by wanting to take pride in what they're doing and be able to explain to their, to their partners and their kids and their employees, like, hey, this is why we're a positive actor on the planet. And that works pretty well. Or they get there by sheer greed, which I think is the most positive motivating factor and the most effective factor in changing systems on this planet. Yeah. Next up, we have Suzanne Singer, founder of Native Renewables. And she's talking about how corporations can better prepare for dialogues with indigenous communities. Um, if you're going to approach these communities, you better know how to talk to them. And here's some ideas for that. I think some of the things that are really unknown in lots of um, industry government is how many families are still in need of infrastructure. Um, so not only power, but like 
having roads, thinking, we're thinking about the transportation sector in terms of climate, um, thinking about having access to clean water and even just running water. So, you know, I feel like for a lot of families, these are essential things that exist and you maybe not think about, but these are, you know, these take a lot of time and investment for families who don't have access to these things to get. And it's a lot of effort. Um, some other things that have happened recently is I think trying to share what do we think is important for industry um, when they're working in native communities. Um, I think one major thing is, you know, we're advocating for, for example, in the solar industry, companies to start thinking about hiring some of the workers that maybe they maybe thought were part-time or temporary and starting to invest in their careers as well, but also thinking more about in you know, creatively about what incentives do the communities want, except for just the project? What are some things that'll support them? Um, I think the other things that maybe some industry does, industries don't understand is that culture is really important. Um, so being able to respect the culture, federally recognized tribal nations are sovereign entities. So they have their own processes and structures and governments and they take the time they need to vet projects from different people. And I mean, right now, I think with this, we're excited about what's happening right now in terms of funding and opportunities, but also communities are getting bombarded with requests. And I think not always out of respect and wanting to help the community. And so I think along that thread, I'll just add one more thing. I think having people, whoever's working with communities, like just do your homework, you know, know where the community is. Um, we've definitely had people come to us saying they knew the solution for us, but had no idea where Navajo was. So it's quite frustrating when you get those kind of um, people coming to the table and they haven't done the minimal amount of work. And our final clip comes from Shalanda Baker, Deputy Director of Energy Justice with the U.S. Department of Energy. And she talks about the role of supplier diversity in the energy transition and how corporations can become better at engaging local communities in the process. You know, I, I started my career in energy justice and in academia, really looking at the ways in which um, corporations were impacting communities on the ground. I mean, my very first research project was examining the impact of large-scale wind energy development in communities in Oaxaca, and specifically in indigenous communities in Oaxaca, Mexico. And so there is absolutely a role that they can play in mitigating harm and averting this climate disaster, this climate emergency that we are with are in today. Um, I think, you know, understanding how they interact with communities, first and foremost, um, you know, engaging communities before a project, a clean energy project kind of comes into fruition uh, and making sure that those communities are engaged in the planning process. I think also recognizing that supply chains themselves have to be diverse. And so again, thinking about the US context in particular, we absolutely need to make sure that black and brown businesses are a part of this transition. So um, our supplier diversity um, you know, the, the role of supplier diversity cannot be overstated in this particular moment because we know that lots of resources are going to flow through our economy as a result of this transition. And we have to make sure that the most diverse members of our society are a part of it. So there's a lot to, there's a lot that corporations, multinational entities can, can do right now. Engage communities, look at your supplier diversity and be a good steward. 
um, you know, for the environment. So um, those are things that I'm thinking about and, and, you know, things that I'm talking to our corporate partners about as well. So many great clips, so little time. Thank you for that, Heather. And we will have uh, a number of stories that are up or will be coming up over the next few days on greenbiz.com about Verge 21 sessions. So please make sure to check those out. In early October, KPMG announced plans to invest $1.5 billion over the next three years in services and resources intended to support its clients in advancing their environmental, social, and governance strategies. The move underscores a key finding in the KPMG 2021 CEO Outlook, which found that 30% of the 1,300 global CEOs surveyed plan to invest more than 10% of their revenue toward sustainability measures in the next three years. Joining GreenBiz 350 to chat about that research, as well as KPMG's new services and their own strategy, is Jane Laurie, Global Head of Corporate Affairs for KPMG. Welcome, Jane. Thanks, Heather. Uh, great to be here and looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. Let's start with the research. Give me some context about the survey and what it says about shifting CEO sentiments surrounding ESG issues. Uh, sure. Well, KPMG carry out this survey every year. So basically, we talk to 1,300 CEOs around the world. Um, we, we ask them pretty much what's keeping them awake at night. And partly it's to identify how we can help them. Um, and really interestingly, uh, through COVID, we, we've done it more regularly than, than annually because of the volatility in the market. And what we've seen is a real shift um, towards ESG and, and purpose as being the number one thing that, that uh, CEOs are thinking about. So this year, along with the cybersecurity risk as a number one threat, climate change was the number one issue on CEOs' minds, mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. Uh, and there's this sort of, as you go deeper as well, it also tells us that, you know, stakeholders are expecting much more from them from an ESG point of view, now, whether that's on reporting or whether it's of transforming their business. And Heather, I know you talked about COP26 uh, in the past, but but also the other finding we've, we've sort of seen in this survey is that CEOs really see COP26 as a pivotal moment. Um, so it's really injecting urgency into the climate change agenda. Uh, so the thing that generally speaking, there is a recognition at boardroom level that the business world needs to play its part mm -hmm. in addressing ESG mm -hmm. and particularly, I would say, at this moment in time, uh, climate crisis. Now, can you give me a sense of how the that shifted, right? Like, so before the pandemic and before like the last 18 months, say, where was climate change on that, that agenda? Was it there or was it just a lot lower? So climate change has been on the agenda and I would say it's been sort of going up and down over the last mm -hmm. sort of five plus years. Um, but it's really sort of risen to the top. And I think it's a culmination of everything we're seeing generally um, around sort of the natural disasters we're seeing around the world. Plus, um, I think the pressure that's coming from a COVID, uh, sorry, from a COP26 point of view, real sort of uh, focus on climate at the moment. I would say that it's not just about climate. So climate change is up there as number one. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the ESG agenda, so that whole environmental, social and governance agenda is starting to stretch as well, I think. So um, CEOs are not now just focusing on climate. They're thinking more broadly across the ESG agenda what is it that their organizations need to do differently to address some of those bigger 
uh, whether it's planetary or societal issues that we face in the world today. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about your services in a moment, but I would like to ask how that mindset is affecting KPMG's own strategy, right? So what is your C how has your CEO's uh, viewpoint changed and how has the, the company shifted its, its view on these issues uh, during this time that's, frame? That's a really good question. So I think, um, you know, I always like to say it does start with us, you know, whatever organization you're in, it starts with the, the people and what you do as an organization. And so I'd say that while sustainability has been very much part of what KPMG does, over the last couple of years, we've really focused on um, how can we bring this together to make a bigger difference? So back in January this year, we launched something called our impact plan. So really what it looked at was what are those big things that we're doing as an organization ourselves that we can actually improve um, the impact we're having uh, whether that's like say on planet or society. So for example, uh, this year we, we announced that we've been moving to net zero carbon uh, by 2030. So like a number of organizations really sort of turning the spotlight on ourselves first so we can practice what we preach um, before we sort of go out and advise clients what they should be doing or, or businesses what they should be doing. Yeah. And I, I'm going to I'm going to call this out because I, I didn't realize this number when I was doing the research. And I was like, whoa, that's a lot of people. So you're as part of your shift, you're providing this ESG training to your 227,000 employees. I was like, whoa, that's a lot of people. So what's what's the mission of that? Right. You're, you're going to do that as part of your own shift. What shape will that training uh, take and what what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, well, maybe if I sort of back up and say, so as well as our impact plan, which is kind of what we are doing ourselves, um, we also, as you said at the beginning, Heather, we announced a big investment in sort of changing the services that we provide to other organizations um, to help them address the ESG agenda. So really what we need to do is to start by uh, embedding that in everything we do. So for the listeners who don't know um, everything about KPMG, um, as you say, we're, we're in 150 countries around the world and we provide audit, tax and advisory services to businesses, governments, organisations. Um, and so what we're doing is saying across all of those services, how do we actually uh, embed ESG thinking into what we do and, and how we sort of talk to clients? Um, and as you rightly say, that starts with actually equipping our 227,000 people. So as you say, quite a lot of people equipping them with a sort of basic understanding of um, the ESG agenda. Mm -hmm. but, but I would say, and I think it's an important point, that whilst we need all of our 227,000 um, colleagues to have a basic understanding of the Sustainable Development Goals and the ESG agenda, we also recognise and are investing on a sort of second tier training um, to build the expertise so that we can go and actually advise clients. And then I would say the third tier at the top level is having that really deep expertise. Um, so those subject matter experts, so whether it's in something like decarbonization or whether it's in ESG reporting uh, or even in, in human rights, um, that real subject matter expertise that is going to be, I think, invaluable to organizations as they think about how they build their own uh, ESG roadmap um, to improve their, their impact on society and, and the planet. Got it. So tell me a little bit more about the new services. Where, where do they fit within KPMG's traditional offerings? Well, I think really importantly, Heather, they, they kind of uh, are, are woven through everything. So um, it, it actually, 
I think uh, our CEO talks about it being the, the watermark that runs through what we do. So rather than having it as a standalone service, um, we recognize, and I think uh, people listening to this uh, podcast will recognize that really everything that you do as an organization has some impact um, on the ESG agenda. So what we're saying is that whether whether our people are offering audit, tax, or advisory services um, to the, the, the companies that we work with, they will have an ESG lens that they will look through. So what that means is, as well as the training, um, we're also setting up uh, global hubs. So I think there's a recognition generally uh, around the world that, you know, subject matter expertise to address these issues, um, we need to sort of make the most of that around the world. So how can you actually have resources that uh, can work in different countries, the so subject matter expertise um, that translates into sort of different um, different. Uh, countries. So we basically increase the reach of those uh, subject matter experts. Hmm. Hmm. Now, now you've, you've been on the inside before. <laughs> before you, you went to KPMG, you were in that role, like you were in the role of, of, of your would-be clients for, for these services. And I love the, uh, the focus on integration, uh, uh, you know, weaving this through the organization. So I'm just curious how KPMG will differentiate its services from those being offered by other professional services organizations. So as you go to market, you know, how do you speak to not just the sustainability teams within companies and the ESG teams, but but the other subject matter experts that really need to to have this thinking embedded in their in their own processes. Yeah, so I think it's a number of things. I think as you said, it is about how you weave it through and therefore um making sure it's a, a lens that we look through on every piece of uh business that we do and every, every sort of uh, conversation that we have is a lens you look through. But then I think there's some other sort of more specific things that we can look to as well. Um, so I think, you know, in the CEO outlook, one of the things that came through was uh, businesses saying that they needed support um, from, from not just within the organization, but they actually talk about sort of government support, for example. And that points to a fact that no one person is going to solve this on their own. So actually, I think what KPMG can bring is, is this sort of idea of convening and collaboration. So uh, we already work with a number of the sort of um, big um, IT organizations, technology organizations. So how do we actually bring those technology solutions hmm. um, to the market? So, for example, uh, recently we've announced uh, or launched something called Climate IQ, which is using... Um, AI and, and, and really helping uh, organizations to analyze where the sort of climate risk is in their organization. And then importantly, um, what they can do to address that. So I think what KPMG can do to, to help and, and, and sort of support uh, organizations is to understand the problem and then to bring this global reach and the global solutions in a way that can help those organizations uh, make a positive difference. Got it. Got it. One last question for you before we have to uh, give up the microphone here. What will success look like for this investment? So it's a uh, th- over the next three years. How how will you be uh, measuring this and 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 engaging its success? I think I think the real measure for me is uh, success will be about making a difference to the problems that we're facing today. And say we, I mean globally, we um, organisations. So I think if KPMG can quantify our impact, um, 
So, for example, how many tons of carbon have we helped our clients remove from supply chain? Um, how many people have we supported um, through clients to improve their earning potential? What technologies have we introduced that have helped clean up water or provide better sanitation? So actually, for me, success of this ESG strategy is really truly about helping people solve the problems uh, that we're facing today in, in the world uh, and society at large. Well, thanks for dropping by. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Heather. That was great. You just heard from Jane Laurie, Global Head of Corporate Affairs for KPMG. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. We publish seven every week. It's a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, your questions, your tips, anything you got. Hit us up at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week. Heather live from Glasgow, Scotland, with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in. This episode is sponsored by the Climate Pledge from Amazon. Take a leadership position on climate change and join a coalition of businesses driving towards a bold commitment of net zero carbon by 2040. Learn more about becoming a signatory at theclimatepledge.com.